Hello, everybody. Hello. Turn in your Bibles to Second Samuel chapter twenty-three. Second Samuel twenty-three. <coughs> um, let's begin with prayer and thank God for our time together, and to be grateful and humble before Him, to learn His Word, and to be um, good students of His Word, concentrating and putting our faith in what we hear. So, with that in mind, let's pray. Our Father in heaven, your name is holy. We pray, Father, that your kingdom, as we will look at today, uh, would be in our hearts. We know that we are members of your kingdom. Uh, your kingdom has a way, it has rules, it has laws. Um, we are sinners, Father, and sometimes we come up quite short of that, but we are forever members of your kingdom. Therefore, we are grateful first and foremost for our Lord and Savior and His sacrifice on the cross for, our, for us and being judged for our sins that there is no condemnation for those in Christ Jesus. And yet still, Father, we are as members of Your kingdom required and have uh, obedience to be reached for. And we ask, Father, that through Your Word today that we would be even more uh, encouraged and also motivated to uh, live, even though your kingdom is not here on earth, to live as though it is. And we ask this in Christ's name. Amen. <coughs> so, <coughs> ooh, excuse me. Uh, in the Lord's Prayer, uh, our Father who is in heaven. So we're praying to our Father who is in heaven. Our voices are heard in heaven. Uh, he is our Father eternally. And then uh, the second petition, or well, the first petition is, Holy be your name. We looked at that yesterday. And uh, the holiness of God is clear in the Scripture. It is uh, more than or greater than what we can imagine, uh, His holiness. The purity of Him compared to us, it's night and day. And yet we are commanded to be holy. And so the first petition is that the holiness of God or God Himself would be revered by us as to his nature, as to his way, as to his person, that we would revere him and set him apart. We looked at the various names of God in the Old Testament, just a few of the many, and that God is, a, you know, everything that is a characteristic of God is something that we should set apart for us saying to ourselves that only in him will we find these things and in nowhere else. So that's holy be your name. Now, the one who is holy is sovereign, and uh, as creator of all things, he's sovereign of all things, Um, and that's kind of a no-brainer. And so his kingdom, uh, we pray for it to come, but some have, because of this petition, thrown this prayer out as, uh, uh, sorry, as applying to the church, because it seems to say that we're asking God to bring his kingdom, which is really his kingdom with Israel for that thousand years, the, the kingdom of the millennium, and that we're asking God to bring it to earth. And that certainly is not the case here. And in fact, in no case is God going to bring his kingdom because people ask him to. It is, this is already foreordained when he will bring his kingdom to earth. That is the second coming of Christ. 
But, so, therefore, your kingdom come is uh, a petition for the reality of that kingdom to be in our hearts. And uh, so, as we'll see, we'll continue here. There's various kingdoms in the Word of God that, I shouldn't say various, they're all the same one, but they're described in different terms. And we'll see that in a second. Uh, a uh, quote from Dean Trench uh, in his book called Notes on the Parables. He says this, quote, The Lord is king, not borrowing this title from the kings of the earth, but having lent his own title to them, and not only not the name only, but having so ordered that all true rule and government upon earth, with its righteous laws, its ordinances, or its stable ordinances, its punishment and grace, its majesty and its terror, should tell of him and of his kingdom which rules over all. So that kingdom of God is not in fact a figurative expression, but most literal. It is rather the earthly kingdoms and the earthly kings that are figures and shadows of the true. Uh, What he means here is that the kingdoms of the earth have borrowed or uh, tried to mimic God's kingdom. Uh, And there's no other way to do it. You have to kind of borrow God's kingdom or the rules of God's kingdom, meaning that you have to have authority. Uh, All kingdoms know this. You can't just let people do whatever they want. You you wouldn't have a kingdom that way. Therefore, you have to have authority. You have to have laws. Uh, (coughs) You have to enforce those laws. Uh, And you have to have a, a, a people and a land, you know, and, and you have to defend the borders of your land or will be overrun. And there's no kingdom without those things and several others. Uh, these things are borrowed from God as mankind is trying to kind of mimic this. Uh, <clears throat> so it should be stated that there are five facets to the kingdom of God. First, there's the universal kingdom, which is... You know, the, the passages in the scripture where you find that God is ruler or sovereign over all. And, and this, this, therefore, the, the kingdom of God is really everything. And, excuse me, he is ruler over everything as sovereign. So we would call that the universal. That's what most theologians call it, the universal kingdom of God. It would include believers, unbelievers, angels, fallen angels, everything. So he is sovereign over all. Then there's a spiritual kingdom, and spiritual is not the best word for it, but there's no one word that really describes it well, and that's your kingdom, my kingdom. In other words, we're we're members of a kingdom that isn't here. It's not here on earth. We're members of a kingdom that is to come. Uh, We have the desires and the the rule of that kingdom. The king of that kingdom is our king. The rules of that kingdom are our rules, and if you're a born-again believer, you know, even though we resist the rules, uh, we find that we desire the rules also. And that, that's a part of just the conviction of a Holy Spirit in every believer's life. Every believer desires to live properly in the kingdom. But the kingdom's not here, so we call it spiritual. Spiritual is not great because it seems to state that it's not real that it's kind of mythical or mystical, uh, but that's not true either. It's very real. So we're uh, aliens in a foreign land. That's just how Peter describes it and describes us in his first epistle. 
And so we're um, a part of that spiritual kingdom. Uh, then there's the millennial, oh, sorry, the theocratic kingdom, which is the kingdom of Israel in the Old Testament for roughly from, uh, say, let's say about a thousand years it lasted, uh, from Moses, and that's what God calls it a kingdom, uh, when Moses established, or I should say God established through Moses, the kingdom of Israel at Mount Sinai after they had uh, been freed from Egypt. That's about 1400 B.C., and uh, uh, Judah is led into captivity by the Babylonians around 586. So it's roughly eight to 900 years long. Uh, then there's the Millennial Kingdom, which is kind of a, well, it's different than the Kingdom of Israel in the Old Testament in that in the Millennial Kingdom of Christ, which is at his second coming, he establishes his kingdom on earth for a thousand years. That is literal and very real and very physical. He's going to be here on earth in a resurrection body on the throne of David. And we're going to be with him. Uh, We're not a part of that kingdom. The church is not a part of that kingdom. Uh, That kingdom is for Israel. But we'll be here. So it's difficult to discern. Uh, We know, see, the, the millennial kingdom of Christ is for the fulfillment of the promises to Israel. The Abrahamic covenant, the Davidic covenant, Palestinian covenant, and the new covenant. All of those will be fulfilled by Christ at his second coming. Um, And so that is a promise of the uh, spiritual things that we have now uh, will be fulfilled in Israel as well as the physical. Um, In that case, Israel and the church are separate. We're not the same. And so it is fulfilled to Israel, though we're here ruling with Christ in some capacity. Uh, And then... There's one other, which is the quirkiest of them all, I guess. Quirky is probably not the right word. But the mystery kingdom is the kingdom parables that are taught by Christ in Matthew chapter 13. And that kingdom consists of the age of uh, the earth between Christ's first advent and his second advent. And in that kingdom, all those parables, the, the, the first of those parables is the parable of the sower, And in the parable of the sower, you have believers and unbelievers. In the parable of the tares, the wheat and the tares, you have believers and unbelievers. In the parable of, like, say, the dragnet or the mustard seed, that's the church. And so the mystery kingdom is this age in which the church would expand to huge numbers, which it has, uh, all over the world, which it has. Uh, the, The parable of the leaven is that the leaven would move through the whole loaf. And that's us, that's the church. Uh, But it would also be an age in which there was a lot of opposition, a lot of unbelievers as well. And Jesus called that a kingdom. And so that's the five of them. The universal kingdom, the spiritual kingdom, the kingdom of old that was Israel, the kingdom of Israel that's future, and then this mystery kingdom which is the time of this age uh, between the two advents of Christ. All right, so you digested all of that. And now we say, well, what is my kingdom, or not my kingdom, sorry, what does your kingdom come mean? And, <clears throat> and that is that the spiritual kingdom would be in our heart. Your kingdom come. Uh, the 
<clears throat> this would mean that we want the kingdom of God, its rules, its king, its laws, its way, its very life, uh, to be in our hearts. So, in other words, when we look at a, a world, we're in a kingdom. You know, the United States of America is a kingdom. And it has many problems. And uh, we would love for those problems to be fixed. Or to be at least worked out. Or at least to be made better. And things are getting worse here. Uh, the, the, the lunatics have definitely taken control. Uh, <coughs> it's still, it's not our kingdom. And that we have to remember. It is uh, what we want to live in is the kingdom of God now in our hearts. As if we, and we are, we're members of this kingdom, but to live that way. To know that this world isn't ours, but that the world to come is. And so to actually live in that future world now. And how would I, you know, the way I do that is in my heart. I do that uh, by following its rules, by living in its way, by rejoicing in it, <clears throat> by loving it, and very importantly, by evangelizing for it. <clears throat> Your kingdom come is not just in our own hearts, but in the hearts of others. Uh, any person who believes in Christ can enter this kingdom. And so we're witnesses of this kingdom. We're recruiters for this kingdom. Ambassadors for this kingdom. Now, <clears throat> it's interesting to note that um, this world would have been destroyed a long time ago. It almost was before God brought the flood. But if it were not true that God was sovereign over this whole world, and that would be the universal kingdom, that everyone would have killed each other a long time ago. That everyone born into this world has the advantages of the external, temporal kingdom, universal kingdom of God, by which God being sovereign enforces certain rules. He will maintain human history. It will go on. Until Christ returns, and when Christ returns, it will go on for another thousand years. And, and then, and only then, when God says it's over, will it be over. So, God is sovereign over the ages, and because of that, the world is preserved. Uh, and everyone, though they don't recognize it, is um, a benefiter of that kingdom. Uh, everybody is... Uh, has a conscience and has laws to follow and has uh, there's laws enforced, there's rules that are enforced that uh, at least keep it going. And, um, and everybody's a benefiter of that. <clears throat> but then a born-again believer, born in, of the Spirit of God, is introduced to the eternal and peculiar privileges of Christ's kingdom. And... In our kingdom, we have the privileges of knowledge. We can learn the scripture. We have the privileges of uh, the Holy Spirit within us. Uh, we have the privileges of having a spiritual gift, having a body of Christ. Uh, in the body of Christ, we each have a role to play. We have a, God gives us a family. God gives us himself as our father. And we have a destiny and we have a meaning to our lives. And through all of this, when we become a part of God's uh, eternal kingdom or spiritual kingdom, there's privileges, and we are given those. Every single believer is given those privileges. 
But of course, they come with responsibility. Uh, we also come to find out that this kingdom is not material. Christ did not promise us any material benefits. Now, we all have them, but Christ didn't promise us a certain amount. Uh, as he said, the poor will be with you. Uh, some of us are poorer than others. We're, none of us are guaranteed a certain amount of material. We can pray for it all we want, and God is going to give us what he desires. And that's a part of our Lord's Prayer, too. Give us today our daily bread. Uh, unfortunately, there's a lot of uh, replacement theology out there. And replacement theology states that the kingdom that is in our hearts replaces the promised material kingdom of Abraham. And that's not true. It's not true. Replacement theology is that the church replaces Israel. And therefore, that there's no literal millennial kingdom. So they're amillennialists. They don't believe in a literal millennium. And there's a lot of them. They're Calvinists, uh, mostly. Uh, and uh, but you know it's 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 not true uh, just because we're uh, benefiters of certain aspects of the kingdom doesn't mean that Israel is not going to get the fulfillment of all that has been promised to her. It's just it's beyond me that to understand why people think that because this person over here gets certain benefits that this this other people get none. <clears throat> and just because you know somebody is giving something that is looks like what is promised to another uh, doesn't mean that the other isn't going to get that. And so it just it's confusing to me why they believe that. But anyway, uh, <clears throat> our kingdom was a mystery, not prophesied before, not known. Uh, the millennial kingdom is all over the Old Testament. Actually, more, most of what we know about it is in the Old Testament. Uh, the prophets prophesied about the millennial kingdom quite a bit. But none could see the church age. The church age was a mystery. The fact that in our kingdom, Jew and Gentile would be one new man in Christ, and that Jew and Gentile, as this new man, would enjoy the spiritual blessings of the new covenant, but not the material. Uh, <clears throat> though, though we have Christ, we will not see Christ. Though he sits on his throne, we will not see that. Not until we die, until after we die or we're raptured. Uh, however, Christ is within us. He's the hope of glory in Colossians 1. And his kingdom is with us and within us. And he will come again to establish his kingdom, his earthly kingdom, in which all who are in that kingdom will enjoy the spiritual benefits that we enjoy now. But we get them first. And so, <clears throat> though we don't have the material kingdom, we have the spiritual aspects of this kingdom, which allows us to live it. The kingdom of God is a concept, therefore, that includes three things. The right to rule, a realm in which ruling authority is exercised, and the reality of that authority actually being exercised, we would say enforcement. So <clears throat> there's a right to rule, there's a king, there's a realm, and there's an enforcement of law. And uh, every kingdom has those three things, if it is a kingdom. So let's look at, uh, look at 2 Samuel 23. Look at verse 1. 
David uh, very often is the describer of the coming king. Uh, and that would make sense because <coughs> the king is the son of David. And David wrote about half of the Psalms, we think. And, uh, and so it would seem right, <coughs> excuse me, that David would write most, mostly about the coming king. So look at 2 Samuel 23.1. <coughs> excuse me. Now these are the last words of David. David, the son of Jesse, declares, and the man who was raised on high declares, the anointed of God of Jacob, or sorry, the anointed of the God of Jacob, the sweet psalmist of Israel. So there in in verse 1, he's describing himself. He is the sweet psalmist of Israel. The Spirit of the Lord spoke by me, and his word was on my tongue. The God of Israel said, The rock of Israel spoke to me, who rules over men righteously, who rules in the fear of God. Now, we might think that this is David speaking of himself, but David didn't live up to this. And no man can. Not even close. None of us live up to the valor, the strength, the virtue, the wisdom of our Lord. We're not even close. And so, when it comes to worship, it's Him and Him alone. When it comes to honoring, not that we can't honor one another, but to worship another would be absolutely disastrous. So again, excuse me, the God of Israel said, the rock of Israel spoke to me. He who rules over men righteously, who rules in the fear of God, is as the light of the morning when the sun rises, a morning without clouds, when the tender grass springs out of the earth through the sunshine after the rain. And so in wonderful poetic imagery, uh, David here describes the one who would rule over men righteously, like the light of the morning. Uh, (coughs) The light of the morning, it touches everything. It's everywhere. It warms everything. Uh, And it's beautiful. You know, it's a sunrise. Uh, A morning without clouds, meaning there's no obstruction. And this would would really be of no man. No other man could this be be a description of. (coughs) The tender grass springs out of the earth and then the sunshine after the rain. So (coughs) this king, and this is, it's really quite important because as we (coughs) hallow or make holy the name of God, we're also... Noticing that in this kingdom that we're a part of, it has a king. And this king is magnificent. Uh, So go to Psalm 45. Uh, the king is a poet and a warrior, and uh, this is a, it's a nice, nice uh, contradistinction between the first advent of Christ and the second. Uh, in the first advent of Christ, he's meek. In the second advent of Christ, he comes as a warrior with a sword coming out of his mouth. Um, and both of them are depicted here in Psalm 45. And actually, the wedding of the king is in here too. And it, it shows us as those who are presented um, 
to the, the Lord as his bride, just completely decked out in wedding clothes. It's perfect and beautiful, and he's the one who's made us like that. So, <clears throat> for the choir director, according to the Sushanim, a mascal of the sons of Korah, a song of love. My heart overflows with a good theme. I address my verses to the king. My tongue is the pen of a ready writer. You are fairer than the sons of men. Now, the you here is Christ. You are fairer than the sons of men. Grace is poured upon your lips. Therefore, God has blessed you forever. So, <coughs> this thing. so in the second verse, we have the, the poet, right? He's a writer. You're fairer than the sons of men. Grace is poured upon your lips. Therefore, God has blessed you forever. So this is a, a poet, and it's wonderful. You know, it, it's Christ as one who would write and write well. In other words, he would uh, speak of himself and of good things and of true things to us. Things that should excite us, you know, things that are wonderful, and he writes of them. But then, in verse 3, Gird your sword on your thigh, O mighty one. And so now it's a great contrast, right? We have this writer who's fair, Right? Fairer than the sons of men means he's good-looking. And he's handsome. He's uh, wonderfully skilled with words. But then in verse 3, he's a warrior. Gird your sword on your thigh, O mighty one, in your splendor and your majesty. And in your majesty, ride on victoriously for the cause of truth and meekness and righteousness. Let your hand teach. Let your right hand teach you awesome things. Your arrows are sharp. The peoples fall under you. Your arrows are in the heart of the king's enemies. Well, and so uh, this uh, verse three through five describe the second coming of Christ, and we would say verse two really is a depiction of his first coming. And in his first coming, he did a lot of teaching. He did a lot of speaking. And his words were beautiful. But in, uh, <clears throat> when he comes again, he's coming with his sword. And this is clearly depicted in Revelation 19. Now, for us, we uh, should cheer him on. Yeah? Uh, and I, I mean, even so, uh, to look forward to the second coming, uh, to know that, you know, as we see in the world and the earth that God's enemies seem to be getting away with it, that they seem to be, uh, uh, they prosper, they have uh, a lot of things and a lot of influence and a lot of power, and yet they are going to be judged. And so we don't have to judge them, and therefore we don't have to get jealous of them. We don't have to envy them. We don't have to look to ourselves and say, you know, am I, you know, am I trying so hard to live the Christian life for no reason? Uh, am I trying to be virtuous and deny myself? And I'm suffering for it as I you know, resist temptation instead of giving in to temptation. Is it a, just a waste of time? Because I see all around me those people who are giving in to their temptations and they seem to be prospering. But we see here and in many other places, what is the end of those who reject God? What is the end of those who will not obey God? 
And, and still, even for believers, believers who disobey God, what do we get when we, do, when we disobey? We get disciplined. Greatly so. And thank God that we do. God cares about us. So, who doesn't long for such a leader or a kingdom where only righteousness dwells? This is our certain future. <clears throat> we'll be clothed in white. I didn't put in my notes, but let's see us. I'm going to go there to verse 5. So, verse 6. Your throne, O God, is forever and ever. The scepter of uprightness is the scepter of your kingdom. You have loved righteousness and hated wickedness. Therefore, God, your God, has anointed you with the oil of joy above your fellows. All your garments are fragrant with myrrh and also, I'm sorry, and aloes and cassia out of ivory palaces, stringed instruments have made you glad. King's daughters are among your noble ladies, and your right hand stand, and at your right hand stands the queen in gold from Ophir. Uh, <clears throat> the gold from this part of the world was desired over, uh, and it was it was uh, a beautiful quality, and it was desired. Now, the the queen here in verse nine is the bride of this king of this warrior, and that's us. In Revelation 19, at the wedding feast, we're dressed in white. Every one of us. There's not one who isn't. In Revelation 19.5, it says the great and the small rejoice at that wedding that are members of it because they're the bride of Christ. Uh, <coughs> for certain, some of us are going to have more righteous deeds than others, and we're going to be judged by the Lord for those righteous deeds, whether, our, whether we've done good or bad. But at the wedding feast, we are all clothed in white, and we are all there, and we're all rejoicing, we're all glad, and we're all glorifying the Lord. <clears throat> so that's our kingdom. Uh, go to John chapter 3. <clears throat> now the uh, influence of monarchy hasn't been in the, in the West in a very long time. And so we don't really have any or have much familiarity with it. But for many centuries, uh, kingdoms were ruled by monarchs. Uh, the modern West is, is a great exception to this, to have republics where people vote for representatives and those representatives represent them. I know that they, they don't, <laughs> but they're supposed to. And that's, that's the way it works. But <clears throat> you know, when we got our independence in America, it was from underneath a king, King George III. And George III was a monarch. He was a young man and actually not so bad of a monarch, I found out. He wasn't the big jerk that I thought, always thought he was. Uh, he was a decent monarch, but yet a monarch. And why was he? By birth. To him, and he believed this, that by right of birth, he had the privilege of ruling over others. 
and uh, I, I can't remember who said it. It might have been Jefferson or one, one of them. It said, you, you can't, no man can treat another man like a horse. All right? you are, there's no one who is born sovereign able to rule another. And of course, our forefathers understood that there was one who did this and who had the rights of monarchy, which is the Lord Jesus Christ. So, <clears throat> to be a part of this kingdom is not by birth, but in fact, it actually is. It's by second birth. But this is second birth, our second birth, when we're born again, is different in that we choose it. Each of us, by faith, choose to believe the gospel. And when we do, we're born again. And that's what Christ said to Nicodemus here in John 3. John 3, 3, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. Now, in the, the last season of The Chosen, they did this scene. And it was one of my favorite scenes that they did. They did it marvelously. <coughs> they followed the scripture perfectly. And I, and I thought, you know, even with what they added, to, because you have to if you're going to make an actual scene out of it, um, that it was beautifully done. Just the right amount of restriction. They didn't add too much. And, and in, in that scene, just like it is here, Nicodemus is just baffled. What do you mean born again? Nicodemus said to him, now, how can a man be born when he is old? He cannot enter a second time into his mother's womb, can he? Now, Nicodemus is a smart man. He doesn't think this. He's saying it sarcastically that what you're, basically what he's saying to Jesus is what you're suggesting is impossible. But Jesus answered, truly, truly. This is amen, amen in Greek. I say to you, unless one is born of water and the Spirit, he cannot enter the kingdom of God. The water part here, depending on what denomination you're from, um, is interpreted in various ways. Some think it's water baptism. But <clears throat> it is not because it can't be water baptism because then water baptism would be required for salvation. Uh, there's a wonderful passage in Ezekiel 36 that is about the new covenant where God says, I'm going to wash you with water. He says this to Israel. Now, you know that we're benefits, beneficiaries of this new covenant. When he said he was going to wash Israel, he meant that he was going to wash their sins away. He was going to cleanse them. And that is absolutely true of every born-again believer. We are cleansed of all sin. And so, born of water, and that would be his cross where he cleansed us, and of the Spirit, that would be the baptism of the Spirit that enters us into union with Christ. And so therefore, he says, if this doesn't happen, you can't enter the kingdom of God. No one can apply for it. No one can force their way into it. No one is in it by natural birth, which a lot of the Jews believed at this time, and perhaps still do, that <coughs> because they're children of Abraham, that they're guaranteed the promises of Israel or to Israel, which they're not. It's not natural privileges. Any person born with natural privileges, no matter how great they are, is not born with this privilege. You have to be born again to have this privilege. And this privilege is being a member of this awesome kingdom. 
It's a great and eternal kingdom. And so when we're praying every day, here we are again, like we said yesterday, we're forced with the reality in our own hearts of do we honor and make God's name holy? What is God's name? And that is all of his attributes, all of his characteristics. And when Christ told us to pray this, we're forced to acknowledge it. You are holy. How much we believe that? You know, how much do we commit to him? How much of our lives do we give him? We're confronted with that too. And that's when I run right to the forgive us our sins. Because you know, I, we all, I know we all got a long way to go. Uh, <clears throat> the more you see of holiness, the more you see of you. And it's, a, it's pretty ugly in there. Your sins, your weaknesses, your flaws, they get enlightened. The closer you get to God, the more you know of God, the more you even desire His holiness in your life, the more you're going to see what you are. <coughs> you have to be ready for that picture and ready to say, look, I'm forgiven. And there's no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. So I'm not as holy as I want to be or should be. I'm not even close. But I will strive for it. And see, with the promises of God, see, it's not like pray for the kingdom that you might be a part of it. If that were the case, I mean, all of us are eventually just going to give up. Why would I, pers- why would I keep pursuing this? I'm not even close. The kingdom seems like a hundred miles on top of a hill and I'm still scratching around at the, in the foothills. I can't get up there. But <clears throat> we're told that we're members. In Colossians 1.13, we are transferred into the kingdom of His beloved Son. It's true for everybody. We're in Second Peter chapter 1. We're, uh, sorry, 1 Peter chapter 2, 2 Peter chapter 2. In one of those two epistles... It says that we are members of a priesthood, uh, membership in a nation of priests. So, this kingdom is made up of priests, which is exactly what God said to Israel at Mount Sinai when he gave the Ten Commandments to them. He said, you will be a nation of priests. They were all supposed to be uh, (coughs) uh, believers and worshipers of God. Now, all, all who are born again, you know, members of this kingdom, uh, we're not striving to become a part of it. It is what we're a part of. And so, <clears throat> if the time comes, and if it hasn't already, I'm sure it will, that we're, you're ready to throw up your hands and throw in the towel and quit on this, God reminds you there's no quitting because you can't leave it. You are a member of this kingdom forevermore. And so you can't quit. No matter what. No matter what your past looks like, you can't quit. There's no getting out. Now, I remember Pastor Bob used to say it was like being in the mafia. Right? You can't you, you can't say to the mafia, Don, you know, I quit. I don't wanna I don't want to do this anymore. Because that's when they whack you, right? <coughs> Uh, the sovereigns of the world, of mankind, this world that we're born into, 
that a lot of people that think, well, that a lot of people in this world, they look at they look at this world and they say, well, this is all we got, right? So they kind of, in some way, adore it. And not, we all are to love God. This is God's creation. <coughs> Excuse me. When it comes to the universal kingdom of God, this is it. This is a part of it. And there's much beauty and goodness here. But <clears throat> this world is to be destroyed. And the sovereigns of this world, since it's fallen, because it's fallen, the sovereigns of this world are sin and death. What is the problem with the world? Sin. That's it. Uh, <clears throat> our theology professor showed us a clip of uh, the Crown yesterday, the show, The Crown. It's about uh, Queen Elizabeth. It's a good show. Uh, it's very historic. They, they do the history as, as accurately as they can. And <coughs> uh, just after World War II, I think it was in the early 50s, Billy Graham, the Billy Graham crusade came to Great Britain, and Billy Graham was loved there. He's, he was uh, accepted his crusades, his meetings were, you know, tens of thousands of people. And Queen Elizabeth watched him on TV and wanted to meet him. And she was a devout Christian woman. And she spoke with Billy Graham. And there was a, there's a clip and in the show. They show the actual clips of Graham preaching. And in the show, that was one of the lines. That one of the lines that he, he probably said it often, but he said it in England, that there is one problem with this world, and it's a three-letter word, S-I-N, sin. And that's just it. The problem with people, with us, is sin. The result of sin is death. That's Romans 3.23. But let's look at Romans 5. Turn to Romans 5, verse 19. So in the midst of this world that was antagonistic and is antagonistic to God and to his son, to the Christ, to the Messiah, the Messiah comes into this world and what does he say? The kingdom, and the first thing that he says, in, well it's not the first thing he says, but in the Gospel of Matthew, his first words when he starts his ministry, it's not the first thing he says in the Gospel, but in Matthew chapter 4, the first thing that Jesus says when he starts his ministry is, repent, the kingdom of God is among you. And because he's the king. And so he brought with him the kingdom of God. All who believe upon him would become a member of this kingdom. So look at Romans 5.19. For it is through one man's disobedience the many were made sinners. And the many in this context means all of us. The one man is Adam. For as through one man's disobedience the many were made sinners, even so, through the obedience of the one, Jesus Christ, the many will be made righteous. And the law came in that the transgression might increase. And the admission here by Paul, the writer, is that God obviously knew that when he gave his law, here he means the Mosaic law, given part of it, the beginning of it was given at Sinai, 
that this would not decrease sin, but increase sin. And interestingly, that when Israel heard the law at Sinai, the people with one voice, of one accord, said, we will keep all the law. Little did they know. So, when the law came in, uh, the law came in that the transgression might increase, but where sin increased, grace abounded all the more. So, this, the, incre- the increase of sin by the law did not stop God from sending his Son. The increase of sin would mean that Jesus would be judged for even more sin. That as sin reigned in death, so notice the word reigning here. It is the common Greek word for sovereign. As, the, as sin reigned in death, even so grace might reign through righteousness to eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. So, under Adam, the fall of Adam, we get reigning in this world sin and death. The result of sin is death. What we get with the, sec- the last Adam uh, is the reign of grace. Another short word, little word, charis in the Greek. It's a beautiful word. That means that God would bestow favor upon us and not ask us for anything in return. God would bestow favor upon us and ask us to do what? To believe upon Him. And He would ask us now that we're believers to obey Him, but what obedience is is a natural result of faith. So grace might reign through righteousness to eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. So our kingdom is this, and this is what we want in our hearts, this is what we want in our, our motivation. Um, this is what we want for our, our lives and the lives of our loved ones, our homes. And we would, though we're not praying that the United States of America would become the kingdom of God. That's not going to happen. Uh, the kingdom of God doesn't come until the second advent of Christ. But we would desire, certainly, that the laws and the ways of the kingdom of God would be seen here. And in a lot of ways, right, America has been that. The freest country in the, in the history of the world, at least it was. I think it still is, but we see those freedoms slipping away. The most prosperous nation, the strongest nation, the most blessed nation, and, and really the smartest nation, the most amount of innovation. In fact, the most amount of Nobel Prizes. Not as one politician called them noble prizes. <laughs> uh, that wasn't too long ago either. <laughs> There's a lot of smart people up there in D.C., aren't there? But anyway, uh, <clears throat> but the, the earthly kingdom uh, that seeks sustenance and materials, and it must, our kingdom cares nothing about those things. The kingdom of God is not founded on material things. The kingdom of God is founded upon spiritual things. And that's what we're praying for. For ourselves, for others, for our enemies, for unbelievers, that they would become believers and become a part of this kingdom. For believers who are struggling with sin, that we would pray for them, that their hearts would be changed, that they would see. And, and when, when we see, we will change. So go to Romans 14. Let's skip ahead a little. 
thirsty. <clears throat> Look at Romans fourteen thirteen. Therefore, let us not judge one another anymore, but rather determine this, not to put an obstacle or a stumbling block in a brother's way. I know and am convinced that the Lord Je- in the Lord Jesus that nothing is unclean in itself. But to him who thinks anything to be unclean, to him it is unclean. For if because of food your brother is hurt, you are no longer walking according to love. Do not destroy with your food him for whom Christ died. Now, a little background here helps if, uh, if you do know it, great. But the issue that had come up in the early church was food that was, or meat that was sacrificed to idols. And if meat was sacrificed to idols, could you eat it? And uh, Paul said, yes. You can eat whatever you want uh, because it is, uh, there's no such thing as an idol. Right? It's not real. And so a meat sacrifice to an idol, yes, you can eat it. However, if you were eating in front of someone who thought that <coughs> your eating meat sacrificed to an idol was your um, agreement with the idol or your admission that the idol was real, then you shouldn't eat. And that the person who thought that you're eating something sacrificed to an idol meant that you believed in the idol was a weak Christian. He just didn't quite understand yet. And <clears throat> Paul says in Romans 14, 1, that to the weak we should be obliging and understanding and encouraging. So, <clears throat> in other words, you don't say to that person, And this is the rule of the kingdom of God. It's a rule of love. You don't say to that person, well, that's stupid. You're stupid. I can eat whatever I want. You don't understand. And all of that is, in fact, somewhat true. That they, you know, are they stupid? Well, they just don't understand yet, which kind of makes us all kind of dumb when we don't understand yet. So that's what he's after here. So he says, again in verse 15, For if because of food your brother is hurt, you are no longer walking according to love. Do not destroy with your food him for whom Christ died. Therefore, do not let what is good, what is for you a good thing be spoken of as evil. For the kingdom of God is not eating and drinking, but righteousness and peace and joy in the Holy Spirit. <clears throat> so this... Uh, conflict that was in the early church allows Paul to bring out the reality of the kingdom of God. And so, although we don't have in our, in our age an issue with meat sacrificed to idols, we don't have that. But we have other issues. And if in those other issues, whether it be food or any material thing, if partaking of or having that material thing uh, enjoying it is going to hurt somehow the weaker believer who doesn't understand, then Paul says here that you don't partake of it. Right? So what is the law of love? And that's what our kingdom is based upon, not material things. So when he says, for the kingdom of God is not eating and drinking, that would apply to any material thing in the whole world. The kingdom of God is not uh, about that. But what is it about? Righteousness, peace, and joy in the Holy Spirit. So then, 
I think lastly here, your kingdom come is a desire for our hearts to yield to our king. His way, his laws. And certainly, as we just read in our last passage, it has a lot to do with how we treat others. The kingdom of God is not just made up of me right, or you. It's made up of all of us, the whole body of Christ. And therefore, in that kingdom, we care for, we love, we forgive, we help, we serve, we pray for, we encourage, we root for all the other members. And that's what love does. So this kingdom, as, Jesus, as, uh, sorry, as Paul wrote here, is based on righteousness and peace. And that last word, joy, you know, it's, the kingdom of God is supposed to be a fun place. Not a dreary place. And you know, what drags us down and makes us dreary, depressed, sad, angry, and I mean, you know, sadness and depression could be not sinful, but I mean in the sinful way, what causes that is sin. Uh, the kingdom of God should be a place of joy and a place of peace and a place of righteousness. When we pray, your kingdom come, we're praying for our hearts to yield to the way of our king, which is the way of the kingdom. We're therefore praying that this kingdom be established in our hearts. For though we are members of it forever, we don't automatically yield to our king. None of us do. Automatically. We have to strive for that. And we have to get good at it. You get momentum in obedience. It starts with being obedient in some things, baby steps, and then you're obedient in more things, and you strive to be obedient in everything. And, and the motivation here is not so you'll get stuff because you already have. Remember, this, this kingdom is not made up of material things. <coughs> you're already blessed. You and I are already blessed beyond our imagination. We don't do it because we're getting stuff. We do it because our king is this warrior poet. He's one that, in, in the right way, we fear him right? as we fear God. And we also adore him and love him. We're proud of him. We love him and want to worship him. And by that, we desire to yield to him. All right, let's pray. <clears throat> Thank you, Father, for your word. Thank you that you have provided for us through Jesus Christ eternal membership in your kingdom. We thank you that through your grace, all of us who have believed upon him are members of it. We long for the day that we're going to be a part of it. We long for the day when we're in resurrection bodies and that we will sin no more. But until that time, Father, we strive to live on earth as members of your kingdom. And may your kingdom come in our hearts and we pray for the hearts that same for the hearts of those that we know and love and throughout the whole world. We ask this in Christ's name. Amen.